0: new stormlight symbol designed by Isaac Stewart. Each ornament is hand-blown cobalt blue glass with an etched symbol and date of release. This collector's piece will be available while supplies last as each year a new ornament design will be released. Each ornament is $15 and includes free global shipping. All proceeds from your ornament purchase will go directly to the Lightweaver Foundation. We would love to help you give back this holiday season, as every donation will help further our mission and project outreach. If you'd like to learn more about the Lightweaver Foundation or purchase an ornament, please visit our website at lightweaver.org. All right, so we're gonna do a couple more questions. Why don't you bring up two sheets for us, if you would, Isabel. these again are questions that people from the various bookstores submitted so um, let's see what do you think you'll do after the Cosmere is finished I will die <laughs> it's highly uh, let's let's cross that bridge when we get to it I am focused completely on getting this done uh, within a healthy human beings lifespan um, we have seen Wit tell stories that others told incomplete versions of earlier in the book. Is this an in-world coincidence, or is he aware of those stories being told? Um, it is a little of both. Uh, nothing mystical is happening here. He doesn't automatically know if a story is being told. Uh, but he keeps uh, an eye on things, shall we say, um, and finds out things that he shouldn't know. All right. Nail seems to be able to sense lift stormlight even before she uses it after she eats the roll. Is this an ability of him as a surge binder, or a herald, or something external he's doing or using? Rafo. <laughs> After you decided that you didn't need to be cagey about Cosmere references, did the structure or plot of the Cosmere change? Um, the co- structure or plot of the overall Cosmere is always being tweaked as I am getting further along. This is less has to do with me uh, being willing to put more of it into the books. For what the those who don't know, what this is referencing is Early in my career, um, I had been told that I came from the 90s where continuity was a scary thing to a lot of people. And uh, television shows would not have consistent continuity, they'd be episodic and things. And so I was worried that the story behind the story of the Cosmere would overtake the story of a given book, and I was really worried about that making people feel left out or things like that. Um, As I experimented, I found that I'd been too, um, too subtle. Uh, people found the things, they enjoyed it, and indeed people weren't feeling left out by some of these things, as long as I was careful with them. So I, I basically uh, allowed myself to go a little further in each book with how much we've referenced the greater Cosmere. Um, this in, hasn't changed my outline for the Cosmere, but writing the books has. All right, so we'll get back to the, uh, the story time. Uh, the last piece that I read, uh, Liar Partnell, was written in 2007. And you may be aware of something else that happened to me in 2007, um, and that was The Wheel of Time. Um, and this was one of the reasons why I put Liar Partnell aside, was because I wasn't satisfied with the book, but I also knew that um, I had a lot of work to do. And indeed, we are entering now the era of my career I will call the Brandon Almost Goes Insane era. Um, This was when uh, we built up the company quite a bit because I was working so much. And indeed, people ask me sometimes, they're like, are you worried you're going to get burned out? If I didn't get burned out during this period, then I'm never going to get burned out. Because during this period, uh, from 2007 till about 2015, um, I wrote and released three Wheel of Time books and two Stormlight books and Alloy of Law and some other things. Um, and this was this was kind of a crazy period. Emily and I were still living in a little townhome Um, In Provo, uh, that uh, was really small, did not have a finished basement. It basically had a one room basement. And so I would go down there and work in the basement uh, so that Joel, who was a toddler at the time, couldn't find me. Uh, But there was no heat down there and no insulation, so I'd be heaped up with blankets around me in the winter, typing away on parent scenes, um, writing these books in this little town home. Uh, It was kind of a crazy, crazy time. Peter had to work in that uh, environment as well after we hired him, so sorry, Peter. Um, Peter does not respond well to cold, so uh, he has never forgotten those days in the basement. He, I I think, really appreciated it when he moved into an actual house um, with a finished basement. But things were very, very um, busy during this time. And indeed, you got to feel a sense of it if you were following along at the time, because Tor, suddenly my books took off and were selling a lot of copies. And so suddenly Tor started releasing them faster. Uh, Instead of sitting on them for two years, they're like, why are we not releasing these Brandon Sanderson books we have? And they would just start releasing them. And so suddenly I went from having a two-year lead time on every book to as soon as I turn in a book, like three months later, the book is out uh, almost. Right? Like we turned in Rhythm of War like late September, or no, early September, early September, uh, late August, and it's already out. So, uh, long, big difference from the years where we would have two years of lead time. Um, during this time, how I chose projects changed again, kind of dramatically, uh, because either I had something that I was contracted to write, Uh, And so I had to choose that thing. I couldn't suddenly decide I'm not going to write Towers of Midnight now. No, Towers of Midnight needs to be written. And I also started to kind of, with my own time, uh, if I had time between projects, stretch for things that were very different. Uh, The way that I prevent burnout normally, and this is I really developed during this time, was to reach Four different styles of writing, to do something unlike anything I'd done before. And so during this time, you find me just kind of doing crazy things. Um, this actually started with Alcatraz back when I was working on the Mistborn books. It was the first time I needed a break and needed to do something different. Uh, and as an aside, for a while, when Mistborn was not selling very well, but Alcatraz was looking like it would sell very well, I wondered if my career would, I would take off as a middle grade writer. And I would end up having that be my career. Uh, That's a kind of potential career path for me, is being a middle grade, uh, writing uh, middle grade goofy fantasies like the Alcatraz books. Uh, That reversed as Mistborn finally started taking off. You can watch. I've talked about that before, what happened with Mistborn. We just needed a good repackage um, and that second book to come out, and suddenly that series really took off. But there is an alternate dimension world where Brandon is writing uh, lots of goofy middle grade fantasies. So actually what I want to read to you now is something along those lines that I wrote. I was looking for a book that I didn't publish that was written in the early 2010s, and the one I came up with was um, the book I Hate Dragons, which you may have heard of, because I I started it as a little writing exercise on my blog. Um, And I had completely forgotten that after I had done that little writing exercise on my blog, I'd been like, what if I wrote a few chapters of this? Um, And so I wrote like four chapters of it um, after what happened on the blog. Um, And then a deadline came due uh, for something more important and beyond. The book was just kind of feeling too light and fluffy, um, and so I was not uh, interested in finishing it. But uh, the premise of this is that there is a young man who smells really good to dragons, and always gets used as bait in traps to trap dragons. Uh, he has trapped a dragon uh, by being bait, and now he's wandering around that, that night. The first thing Skip noticed was the beating of enormous wings. He knew instantly what they meant. After three or four hundred dragon attacks, you learn to pick up on the signs. He panicked, of course. He always panicked when a dragon approached. Fortunately, he trained himself not to let that get in the way. So while one primal, a big lizard is going to eat me side of his brain started going in circles, the other side went through a list. Was there water nearby? No. Could he hide in a cellar with a door? No. Could he obscure his scent somehow? No. He'd assumed himself well protected. He doused himself with rose water before leaving the camp, and his pockets were stuffed with garlic cloves. People three cities away could probably smell the stench, but he'd been certain He didn't smell like himself, but that didn't always work. The dragons would find him anyway, particularly if he stayed in one place too long. But he was moving. He should have been safe. Safer, at least. The two sides of his brain collided back together and both told him to run. He dashed forward, hoping to find some kind of cave. It was night, but the moon was near full, so he had a good view of the hills around him. The grassy, pleasant, completely unbroken, not-a-cave-in-sight hills. The wing beats getting closer. He couldn't outrun a dragon in flight. He suddenly felt himself an idiot for having left the hunters. At least there he'd have a chance, someone to fight for him. Surprise the dragon, and Skip forced himself to slow. I only have one chance, he realized. He slowed until he was merely strolling. He stuffed his hand in his pocket, beside the garlic, and felt, held his pack over his shoulder with the other. He started whistling, trying not to sound too forced. It sure is a night, good night for a stroll, he said after a good whistle alone, without anyone to protect or guard me. What a nice breeze that is approaching from behind. He felt a chill between his shoulder blades, as if someone had stabbed him with an icicle. The dragon was flying down toward him. It would grab him in his claws, tear him with its teeth. It was so hard not to look. The beats of the wings changed. Something math- massive and black flew past, about 100 yards away, red eyes watching him. Dragon eyes glowed. The creature winged to the side and landed on a nearby rock. It seemed wary. Skip looked at it and tried to feign surprise. That tied his brain in knots, and he ended up just staring. That seemed to make the dragon even more worried. Its slender neck looked from side to side in suspicion. Your acting is terrible, the monster proclaimed. So I've been told. I smell no hunters. Where are they? Skip resisted the urge to exhale in relief. The other dragon had assumed he was bait. It had actually worked. Uh, hunters, Skip said, trying to sound nervous. I don't know what you mean. You'd have me believe you were out here alone. Sure am. In dragon territory. Oh, this is dragon territory? At night. My, how the time has passed. I didn't notice. (laughs) I realize that humans are often oblivious, but this seems incredible even for one of you. Is it that obvious? Yes, nobody is so stupid. I wouldn't bet on that. Dragon leaned forward on his rock, looking down. Skip stood nervously. "Um, I guess you can go now, Skip said. What about the hunters? You've figured out what we're doing, Skip said, so we can't surprise you. You might as well fly away. We'll never kill you this way. I want to see where you've hidden them. Don't be foolish. Do you have any idea how long it takes to dig in the grass and hide 50 armed soldiers? If they climb out now, it'll be hours getting them back in for the next dragon. Dragon's eyes narrowed further, and he leaned forward on his hilltop. Despite the moonlight, it was difficult to make out much regarding him, black on black, scales that shone softly, red eyes. Something was odd, though. Skip couldn't put his finger on it. I can't let your trap remain here, the dragon said. My brother is flying in these parts. He might fall into it. In fact, a large number of my kin have gone missing in the last few weeks. We have been told specifically to watch for a group of hunters in the area. You haven't seen my brother, have you? Can't say that I have. What's his name? Herogledokermokobakalokalublublublubl? The word was unlike any that Skip had heard. There were sounds in it, unnatural ones, unexpected ones, like getting a teddy bear filled with razor blades for your birthday. Hearing the name made Skip's ears want to rebel and maybe take a turn at smelling things instead. Nope, never heard of him. We certainly didn't kill him earlier today. I hope. <laughs> I don't care how many hunters you have, little man. You have just sealed your fate. I bring you death this night. These wo- those words will be the last that... What? Hey! Wait. Call your hunters, little man. I will best them. No, no, really. Wait. Just realize what's wrong. You don't look maddened by my scent. Your scent? Why should I care about that? But how did you find me? I saw you, little man, walking draconic lands, asking to be devoured, and so, while I'm somewhat full from a tax man I ate earlier, I decided to come down and make a feast of you. It's the principle of the matter, really. But you smell nothing? I can't smell. Inhaled some acidic smoke as a dragon leaned, burst burned my nostrils fiercely. Oh, Skip thought. How wonderful. A dragon who wouldn't, upon smelling him, get driven near insane? It was amazing. Incredible. And actually ironic. For it seemed that this was the dragon who, at long last, would end up eating him." (laughs) (laughs) So let's do two more of those questions. Two more sheets of questions. All right. First one is, I am asked to wish happy birthday to Tyler. Happy birthday, Tyler! I hope that you're watching, or if you're not, you can come see this another time and get birthday wishes, and to anyone else whose birthday happens to be now or around this time. (laughs) What's the longest amount of time in one sitting you've spent entirely writing this series? Uh, It was probably the day I spent finishing Rhythm of War, uh, which was about a year ago. Uh, A little more or a little less than a year ago. You can uh, find it in my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed where I said, We're going to finish this book today. And uh, my family supported me and uh, I went downstairs and I wrote all day. Uh, It was like 12 or 13 hours, I think, uh, something like that. So there you go. What culture inspired the horn eaters? So I don't usually use a single culture for any of my inspirations. I like to uh, mix a bunch of things together, and some will be real world, world cultures and others will not be. Uh, you can probably pick out the um, the Polynesian influences as well as the Russian influences. So They're kind of like Siberian Polynesians, um, but really the thing that... Uh, uh, inspired them. The, the Polynesian part came from the language. I, I'm fascinated with languages, and one of the cool things about the Hawaiian language in particular, which was the inspiration here, um, is that because there are so many fewer sounds, the words get extra long. And that's why a lot of the words in Hawaiian are so long compared to some other languages, because uh, they repeat sounds more often, and they're just by simple math, you end up needing longer words. And I like how poetic the Hawaiian language sounds and things like that, so that's obviously one inspiration. But a big inspiration for them was the original idea um, of their myths, the ones that Rock shares and talks about, and their interaction with the Spren. I wanted a, um, a race, um, a culture. On Roshar, that had both its roots in human culture and in listener culture. Uh, Hornediers are human uh, and listener hybrids, like the um, like the Herdasians are, um, and whose cultural roots went back to both cultures and had built something new out of them. So that's the primary inspiration. Which is your favorite, somewhat lesser-known fantasy series? Um, so every time I'm asked for favorites, it's a little hard for me to pick out because. Um, you know, my favorites change based on the times. And sometimes uh, what is lesser known uh, also changes based on the time. Like when I was growing up, Anne McCaffrey was the big bestseller. But I don't know if Dragon Riders of Pern is commonly read anymore. Uh, and so is that lesser known? Is it not? Um, I usually. Um, uh, point to Daniel Abraham's uh, long, pr- pr- long Price Quartet, which are fantastic, lesser known, uh, very short, epic fantasies with an awesome magic system. Uh, if you don't know who Daniel Abraham is, he is one half of the author that writes The Expanse under a pseudonym with Ty Frank, I believe is the other one, uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, assistant. Um, and So uh, give that one a look. It is quite good. Um, So um, Why don't we do two more of those, and that'll end the questions for tonight. Um, Sorry if I didn't get to your question. We've seen that metal-born siblings can end up with different powers. What about uh, metal-born twins? Can happen. Uh, Most likely they will have the same power. Were there ever characters you've written that got surprising reaction from readers? Yes, and you can go get another one, because this one will be fast. The most surprising reaction I get is always on the side characters I don't expect anyone to pay any attention to. Um, Things like uh, how people will sometimes latch on to—obvious example is the stick. Uh, But other side characters and little things like that. Um, Like when I was writing Yalb in um, the first uh, Stormlight book. I was surprised by how affectionate people were for Yald. Um, And so that's why he has a cameo and something else I've done to let you get an update on where Yald is. So let's do one more set of these. How do you balance creating new and wonderful series while continuing to develop the worlds you already created? Actually, let's do that one next because that'll segue me into the uh, next thing. Out of all the characters you created, which one do you uh, most personify with? Uh, I'm not sure if. Personify is the right term. to identify. might be what they're looking for. Maybe it's the right use. I'm not sure if that's another use of personify. So um, I would say that it it is the uh, character I'm writing right now. Whoever I'm writing at the moment is the one I have to identify with the most. I shamelessly stole that answer from Robert Jordan. It's the way he answered this question. Uh, but really, I put a bit of me into every ca- character I write. Every character is a balance between me and not me. Um, in the Stormlight Archive, in particular, I often point at Yasna as the one I think is most like me, um, but that just depends on what, how I'm feeling at the moment. Uh, interestingly, there's a thing that Yasna says in this book that my beta readers were all like, ah, this is like cliched thing for an atheist to say, and I'm like, no, 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 that's my answer to the question. Brandon's answer um, overruled because I was having Yasna speak from my uh, own. It wasn't me looking for the atheist answer, it was me looking for how I would answer Brandon Sanderson. Uh, it's Yasna's it's little thing that she talks about with hope in the book. Uh, so um, let's go back to this one. How do you balance creating new and wonderful series while continuing to develop the worlds you already created? Thank you for adding the wonderful in there. Whoever asked this, uh, and Isabel, thank you so much. You. <laughs> we uh, leveled up a lot uh, when we started having Isabel write out questions instead of me, um, and she does a wonderful job with that. Uh, so the balance gets into this whole question, right? How do I decide? Uh, we've kind of entered into the modern era now, talking about how I choose now. Um, because now is the time where I've started to really realize, hey, um, if I want to finish the Cosmere by the time I'm in my 70s, I need to be focused. Um, I need to maybe stop letting myself deviate quite as often, um, which has been kind of a harsh realization for me. because. A, Throughout the rest of my career, up until like the last five years, I just always thought, ah, you know, I'll write whatever strikes me when the time strikes me, and that's how I write. That's what I want to do. And at this point, I kind of hit a tipping point where I realized wanting to finish the Stormlight Archive and the Cosmere is more important to me than the freedom of just being able to write whatever I want whenever I want. Um, And this is a, a thing I gave up. When I decided to become published, right? I gave up a bit of that. Um, that the moment I signed a contract for a series, um, I gave up some of that freedom, uh, and I did it eyes open, knowing that it is uh, something I wanted to do. A lot of times in life, uh, we want to have done things. I wanted to have written a great trilogy like Mistborn. I want to have finished something as uh, as powerful, and as uh, weighty, and hopefully as epic as the Stormlight Archive. These are things I, goals I want to have done. And more and more, I want to align the momentary parts of my life with the things that I want to have done in the future, if that makes any sense. And this is starting to change a little bit the way that I approach uh, letting myself be distracted. Uh, you'll notice that um, my upcoming books, are um, uh, there are no secrets among those, I am finishing Wax and Wayne and, and the, the Skyward series, and then finishing the first arc of the Stormlight Archive. Um, and this is me just understanding that um, I don't have to really um, amp it up, but I do have to be consistently on target. And this kind of brings me kind of to the end. I do have one more reading for you, but uh, as I was thinking about opportunity cost, the thing that really settled in my mind was this idea of, what do I want to have done, rather than, what do I want to do now? Um, And I started to to look at each of these stories I've written, and it's interesting in that each story that I write is almost like a picture, a snapshot of who I am at the time. Um, Sometimes I get questions from writers. One of these happened on stream recently, where they say, what do I do if I'm such a perfectionist that I can't finish revising a story, or I can't bear to let a story out there. Um, And the answer, at least for me, to this question is to realize the stories are pictures of you. The stories both cannot be perfect and are already perfect at the same time. Uh, when you are done with them, when that picture of what you can do as a writer is finished at that time, then it's time to let go of that book and say, here it is. This is the picture of me. I have zits right now because I'm a teenager or whatever, and you know, this is the prom picture. Who cares? This is who I am right now. Uh, you know. The, um, the books that I've read to you, particularly those early ones, a little bit rough, but they were pictures of a developing uh, artist. And for me, part of their value is that snapshot of who I was at the time. And when it comes to this opportunity cost, I think that sometimes, at least in picking books, what I'm not acknowledging is that whatever book I pick, is actually going to develop to be a picture of who I am right now. And so in some ways, it doesn't really matter. Um, And so I kind of combine those two things. It doesn't really matter, but also I want to have done things. And I put those together, and that is how, these days, I am picking which books I work on. And uh, to that end, uh, I want to share one more thing with you. Now, I wasn't going to read this, but I was thinking about this, um, this whole year we've gone through. And it's not over yet. Right? Still wearing masks. My poor children uh, still don't know if school's going to go online or not in the imminent future. And my my son Joel is struggling through his first year of junior high with half the time it being uh, home and half the time it being there. And uh, it has just been a really rough year for a lot of people. And so I thought, I'm going to go ahead and read the thing that I, I sent to my, my company. I said, you guys, what do you think? And they're like, well, it does Kind of spoils some things, but maybe it's time. So I'm actually going to read to you from the sequel to Sixth of the Dusk, which takes place during the Space Age of the Cosmere. Uh, and so um, there are going to be some fun things in here that you're not going to get to see uh, in depth for a while. So if you are worried about Space Age of the Cosmere being spoiled for you, I might recommend you know waiting for 15 years before you read this. Um, but I'm going to do a, um, a short reading. So this is something I've been pe- perpetually working on for a few years. Um, and this is not yet Canon, because I haven't released it. Uh, so it's entirely possible that I'll change some of this, but for now, this is from um, the sequel to Sixth of the Dusk," which I haven't named. It's not Seventh of the Dusk. Uh, if you want to read the original story, um, it is in Arcanum Unbounded, or you can get the ebook. I think still is a standalone from our store or from any e-book stores that you want. Uh, but the cheaper way is Arcanum Unbounded because you'll get all of the Cosmere stories, short stories. So, um, here we go. The ones above were human. Dusk had imagined them as strange and terrible creatures full, with faces full of fangs. Artist renditions of them from the broadsheets tended to err on the side of mystery showing beings with dark pits where faces should be, as if representing the darkness of space itself, confined somehow into their strange outfits and helmets. Truth was, nobody had known until this moment. When attempting to inspire trust, the two aliens from another world retracted their helmets and displayed shockingly human features. Dusk stepped forward in the observation chamber, which overlooked the launching pa- landing pad. The chamber was supposed to be secret, with reflective glass on the outside, but Dusk had never trusted that to hide him. The ones above had machines that could sense life, and he suspected they could see him, or at least his aviar, regardless of the barrier. He'd have preferred to be out on the landing platform with the diplomats, but he supposed he should be thankful even that they even let him attend. There were many among the politicians and company leadership who were baffled by Vathy's continued reliance on him. The gov- government officials in the room with him gasped as they saw the faces of the aliens. One male, one female, it seemed, with pale skin that looked like it had never seen the sun. Perhaps it hadn't, considering they lived out in the emptiness between planets. Their helmets retracted automatically, but left stylized metal portions covering the sides of the head, reaching out and covering the cheeks. From the look of the delicate metal, ribbed like ripples of waves, those portions didn't seem like arm- or armor. More like ornament. On his shoulder, Sek squawked softly. Dust glanced at the jet black aviar, then looked around the room, seeking signs of his corpse. The bird can show him glimpses of the future, revealing his visions, his own dead body, ways he could, or perhaps should, have died. It took him a moment to spot the death. It was out on the launch pad. One of the two aliens stood with her foot on Dust's skull, the face smoldering as if burned by some terrible alien weapon. What did it mean? Sex visions had been off ever since that event five years ago, when the alien device had been activated on Pachi. Once, saying the corpse would, have, corpse would have warned Dusk of immediate danger, a biting insect with de- deadly ve- venom or a hidden predator. Now the warnings often felt more abstract. The ones above were unlikely to kill him today, no matter what he did, but that did not mean they were safe or trustworthy. Toward a new era of prosperity, one of them said out at the launch pad, Extending a hand to Vathi, who stood at the head of the diplomats, between our peoples and yours, President. She took the hand, though Dusk personally would rather have handled a deadly asp. It seemed worse to him somehow to know that the ones above were human. An alien monster with features like something that had emerged from the deepest part of the ocean was somehow more knowable than these smiling humans. Familiar features should not cover such alien motives and ideas. It was as wrong as an aviar that could not fly to prosperity vathi said her voice was audible to him as if she were standing at beside him it emerged from the speakers on the wall devices developed using alien technology it is good the second alien said speaking the language of the home isles as easily as if she had been born to it you are finally listening to reason our masters do not have infinite patience we are accustomed to impatient masters vathi said Voice smooth and confident. We have survived their tests for millennia. The male laughed. Your masters, the gods who are islands? Just be ready to accept our installation when we return, yes? The female said. No masks, no deception. She tapped the side of her head, and her helmet extended again, obscuring her features. The male did the same, and together they left, climbing aboard their sleek flying machine, which is in the shape of a triangle with, with pointed toward the sky. It soon took off streaking toward the air without a sound. Its ability to land and take off baffled explanation, the only thing the Dusk people knew about the process was that the ones above had requested the launch pad may be, be made entirely out of steel. The smaller ship would supposedly meet with a larger one that was in orbit around the planet, ship larger than even the greatest of the steam-powered behemoths that Dusk's people had used here on First of the Sun. Dusk had only just been getting used to those creations, but now he had to accustom himself to something new, The even, calm light of electric lights, the hum of a fan powered by alien energy. The ones above had technology so advanced, so incredible, that Dusk and his people might as well have been traveling by canoe like their ancestors. They were far closer to those days than they were to sailing the stars like these aliens. As soon as the alien ship disappeared into the sky, the generals and company officials began chatting in animated ways. It was their favorite thing, talking like aviar who'd come home to roost by the light of the evening sun, eager to tell all the others about the worms they had eaten. Sec pulled close to his hand, then packed at the band that kept his dark hair and a tail. She wanted to hide, though she was no chick capable of snuggling in his hair as she once had. Sec was as big as his head, though he was comfortable and accustomed to her weight, and he wore a shoulder pad that her claws could grip without hurting him. He lifted his hand and crooked his index finger, inviting her to stretch out at her neck for scratching. She did so, but he made a wrong move, and she squawked at him and then pecked his finger in annoyance. She was grouchy as usual. He felt the same way, honestly. Vathy had said it was because city life didn't agree with him, but Dusk blamed a different source. It had been two years since they'd lost lost Cokerly to disease. Without that colorful buffoon around to chatter and stick his beak into trouble, the two of them had grown old and surly. Sack had nearly died from the same disease, and then alien medicine from the ones above. The terrible aviar plague, same as those that had occasionally ravaged the population in the past, had been smothered in weeks. Gone, wiped out, as easy as tying a double hitch. Dusk ignored the generals from their chattering, eventually coaxing sec into a head scratch as they waited. Everything about this new life in the modern city, full of machines and people with clothing as colorful as any plumage, seemed so sanitized, not clean. Steam machines weren't clean, but fabricated, deliberate, confined. This room with its smooth woods and steel beams was an example. Here nature was restricted to an armrest, where even the grain of the wood was ori- oriented to be aesthetically pleasing. Soon, with the coming of the ones of the above and their ways, he doubted there would be any wilderness left on the planet. Parks, perhaps, perhaps preserves. But you couldn't put wilderness in a box, no more than you could capture the wind. You could enclose the air, but it wasn't the same thing. Soon the door opened and Vathy herself entered, her aviar on her shoulder. Vathy had risen high these these last few years, president of the company, one of the most powerful politicians in the city. She wore a colorful striped skirt of an old pattern and a business-like blouse and jacket. As always, she tried through everything she did, dress included, to embrace a meeting of old ways and new. He wasn't sure you could capture tradition by putting its trappings on a skirt any more than you could box the wind, but he appreciated the effort. Well, Vathy said to the group of officials, we've got three months but they're not going to stand any further delays. Thoughts? Everyone had an idea. Ways to stall further, plans to feign ignorance of the deadline or to plausibly pretend that something had gone wrong with the AVR delivery. Silly little plans. The ones above would not be delayed this time and they would not simply trade for birds upon the whims of the hold- home islers. The aliens intended to put a production plant right on one of the outer aisles and there begin raising and shipping their own AVR. Maybe we could resist somehow, said Thule company strategists who had a colorful aviar of Cokerly's same breed. We could fake a coup and overthrow the government, force the ones above to deal with a new organization, reset the talks. A Bold idea, far more radical than the others. And if they simply de- decide simply to take us over, said General, second of Saplings, wrapping his hand on a stack of papers that he held in his other hand, you, could see the, you should see these projections. We can't fight them. If the mathematicians are right, the orbital ships could reduce our grandest cities to rubble with a casual shot or two. The ones above are feeling bored. They could wipe us out in a dozen more interesting ways, like shooting into the ocean so waves wash away our infrastructure. They won't attack, Bathy said. Six years or more, and they've suffered our delays with nothing more than threats. There are rules out there in space that prevent them from simply conquering us. They've already conquered us, Dust said softly. Strange how quickly the others quieted when he spoke. They complained about his presence in these meetings. They thought him a wild man, lacking social graces. They claimed to hate how he'd watched them, refusing to engage in their conversation. But when he spoke, they listened. Words had their own economics, as sure as gold did. The ones in short supply were the ones that secretly everyone wanted. Dusk, Bathy said. What did you say? We are conquered, he said, turning from the window to regard her. He cared not for the others, but she didn't just grow quiet when she spoke. When he spoke. She listened. The plague that took Cochrilli. How long did they sit in their ship up there, watching as our aviar died? They didn't ha- have the medicine on hand, said Third of Waves, the company officer of medical industry. A squat man with a bright red aviar that let him see colors invisible to everyone else. They had to wait to fetch it. Dusk remained quiet. You imply, Bathy said, that they deliberately delayed giving us the medicine until Aviar had died. What proof do you have? The darkout last month, Duff said. The ones above were quick to share their more common technologies, lights that burned cold and true, fans to circulate air in the muggy home isle summers, ships that could move at several times the speed of the steam powered ones, but all of these ran on power sources supplied from above, and those power sources deactivated if opened. Their fish farms are a boom to our open oceans, said the company's secretary of supply. But without the nutrients sold by the ones above, we wouldn't be able to keep the farms running. The medicine is invaluable, said Third of Waves. Infinite mortality has plummeted. Literally thousands of our people live because of what what the ones above have traded us. When they were late with the power shipment last month, Duss said, the city slowed to a crawl. And we know that was intentional from the accidentally leaked comments. They wanted to reinforce their, uh, to us their power. They will do it again." Everyone fell silent, thinking as he wished they'd do more often. Sex squawked again and thus glanced at the launch pad. His corpse was still out there, laying where the ones above left, had left, burned and withered. "'Show in the other alien,' Vathi said to the guards. The two men at the door, with security aviar on the shoulders and wearing feathers on their military caps, stepped out. They returned shortly with an incredibly strange figure. The other aliens wore uniforms and helmets, unfamiliar clothing, but still recognizable. This creature stood seven feet tall and was encased entirely in steel, armor of a futuristic cast, smooth and bright, with a soft violet blue glowing at the joints. The helmet glowed at the front with a slit-light visor, and an arcane symbol, reminding dust vaguely of a bird in flight, etched the front of the breastplate. The ground shook beneath these being's steps as it entered the room. That armor it was surreal, like interlocking plates that somehow produced no visible seam. Just layered pieces of metal, covering everything from fingers to neck. Obviously airtight, with a rounded cast to it. The outman had a, outfit had stiff iron hoses connecting helmet and armor. The other aliens might have looked human, but Dusk was certain this alien was something frightful. It was too tall, too imposing to be a simple human. Perhaps he was not looking at a man at all, but instead a machine that spoke as one. You did not tell them you had met me, the alien said, projecting a male voice from speakers at the front of the helmet. The voice had an unnatural cast to it, not an accent, like someone from a backwater isle, but a kind of unnatural air. No, Bathy said, but you were right. They ignored each of my proposals and acted as if the deal were already done. They intend to set up their own facility on one of the islands. You have only one gem with which to bargain, people of the isles, the alien said. You cannot withhold it. You can merely determine to whom you offer it if you do not accept my protection you will become a vassal to these ones above your planet will become a farming station like many others intended to feed their expansion efforts your birds will be stripped from you the moment it becomes possible to do so and you offer something better bathy asked my people will give you back one of a hundred birds born the armored figure said and will allow you to fight alongside us if you wish to gain status and elevation one in a hundred, second of Sapling said, the outburst unsettling his gray and brown aviar. Robbery. Choose cooperation, slavery, or death. And if I choose not to be bullied, Sapling snapped, reaching to his side, perhaps unconsciously, for the repeating pistol he carried in a holster. The alien thrust out his armored hand and smoke or mist coalesced there out of nowhere. It formed into a gun longer than a pistol, shorter than a rifle. Wicked in shape, with flowing metal along the sides like wings, it was to Sapling's pistol what a shadowy, deep beast of the oceans might be to a minnow. The alien raised his other hand, snapping a small box, perhaps a power supply, into the side of the rifle, causing it to glow ominously. "'Tell me, President,' the alien said to Vaffy. "'what are your local laws regarding challenges to my life? Do I have legal justification to shoot this man?' "'No,' Vathy said, firm, though way voice was audibly shaken. "'You may not.' I do not play games, the alien said. I will not dance with words like the others do. You will accept my offer or you will not. If you do not, you join them, and I will have legal right to consider you my enemies. The room remained still, Sapling carefully edging his hand away from his sidearm. I do not envy your decision, the armored alien said. You have been thrust into a conflict you do not understand. But like a child who has found himself in the middle of a war zone, you will have to decide which direction to run. I will return in one month, local time." The colored portion of the creature's armor started to glow more brightly, a sky blue, or a, sky, uh, a deep violet that seemed far too inviting color to come from this, this strange being. He lifted into the air a few inches, then finally pulled the power pack from his gun, dismissing the weapon to vanish in a puff of mist. He left without further word, gliding back out the hallway past the guards, who stepped away and didn't impede him. This alien arrived without a ship, but didn't seem to need one to travel the stars. He had flown down out of the sky under the power of, they assumed, his strange and magnificent armor. Once he had gone, the two guards took up positions at the door, sheepishly holding their rifles. They knew, as everyone in the room knew, that no guard would stop a creature like that one if he decided to kill. Vathi pulled a chair over the room's small table, then sat down in a slumping posture, her aviar crawling anxiously across her back from one shoulder to the other. This is it, she whispered. This is our fate caught between the ocean wave and the breaking stone. This job had weathered her. Dusk missed the woman who had been so full of life and optimism for the, new advances, of the, futu- and for the f- new advances of the future. Unfortunately, she was right, so there was no sense in offering meaningless aphorisms. Besides, she had not asked a question, so he did not respond. Sek chirped, and a body appeared on the table in front of Vathi. Dusk frowned, then that frown deepened because the corpse was not his. Never in all his time bonded to sec had she shown him anything other than his own corpse. Even during that dangerous time years ago when her abilities had grown erratic, even then she'd shown Dusk his own body, just many copies of it. He stepped across the room and Vathy looked up at him, seeming relieved as if she'd expected him to comfort her. She frowned then when he mostly ignored her to look down on the body on the table. Female, very old, long hair having gone white. The corpse an, wore an unfamiliar uniform after the cut of the ones above, Communic- commendations on the breast pocket, but in another language. It's her, he thought, studying the aged face. It's Vathy, some 40 years in the future, dead and dressed for a funeral. Dusk, the living Vathy asked. What do you see? Corpse, Dusk said, causing some of the others in the room to murmur. They were uncomfortable with sex power, which was unique among AVR. "'That's wonderfully descriptive, Dusk,' Vathy said. "'One might think that after five years, "'you might learn to answer with more than one word "'when someone talks to you.' "'He grunted, walking around the vision of the corpse. "'The dead woman held something in her hands. "'What was it?' "'Corpse,' he said, then moved to the living Vathy's Vathy's eyes. "'Yours.' "'Mine?' Vathy said, rising. "'She glanced at Sek, who huddled on Dusk's shoulder, "'feathers pulled tight. "'Why? Has you ever done this before?' Dust shook his head, rounding the corpse. The body wears a uniform, one of theirs, the ones above. There are symbols on some of the patches in the wards. It appears as if prepared for burial at sea. I cannot read the alien writing. One of the generals scrambled to get in paper and pen. After handing it over, the general backed away, regarding the table as one might a night maw that was ready to pounce. Thus copied the letters on the uniform's most prominent patch. Fatty, read the Secretary of Supply. Colonial governor of the occupied planet, first of the sun. All eyes in the room turned toward Vathy. All but Dusk's, he knew what she looked like. So he kept writing, then nudged the secretary of supply again. Looks like a commendation for valor, the woman replied, for putting down what was called the rebellion of O five. 5 The others are similar. Dusk nodded. So if this was a glimpse of the future, it was what Vathy would do when she died, or it would be when she died, a servant of the ones above, apparently having turned his people's military against rebels who didn't agree. Well, that made sense. He nodded to himself and tried to get a closer look at what the corpse was holding, a small disc or coin of some sort with a drawing on it. Dusk, you don't seem as horrified as you should be, the living Vathy said to him. Why would I be horrified, he said. This makes sense. It's what you would do, probably what you will do. I'm no traitor, she said. He didn't reply. It hadn't been a question, even if it was an incorrect statement. Leave us, she said to the others, please. We can discuss this prophecy later. I need to confer with the trapper. They didn't like it. They never liked it when Vathy listened to him. Perhaps they'd understand if they listened more themselves. Still, they filed out at the request, leaving two humans and two aviar alone. Vathy's bird, Miris, hunched down and raised her wings while staring at the table. seemed that she could sense what Sek was doing. Curious. Dusk, Vathy said. Why do you think I'd do these things? Progress—it is your way. Progress is not worth the blood of my people. Progress will come anyway. Dust said, "The dusk is past. This is the night. You will presume, presume to find a new dawn and to do what you and do what you must to guide us there." He looked at her, then tried to smile. There is a wisdom to that, Vathi. It is what you taught me many years ago. She wrapped her arms around herself, staring at the table. Must it be? No, I am not dead, am I? She shook her head. I want a way out, Dusk. A way to fight back against them or something. A way to control our own destiny. They're both so confident that they own us. What I wouldn't give to be able to surprise them. You're holding something, Dusk said, leaning down. A coin. Large one. Maybe a medallion. Not money. Engraved with a man on a canoe, wearing feathers and holding aloft a board with wave patterns on it. Some kind of trapper? Tenth, the finder, she said. He frowned. Seriously, Dusk? He's one of the most famous explorers and trappers who ever lived. My trainer didn't tell me of him. You could read a book or something. The past is important. If it was important, my trainer would have told me about it. So, this man must not be important. (laughs) Vathy rolled her eyes. He was the first man to explore Pachi. Then he likely died quickly, Dusk said, nodding. Means he must not have known much. First of all, explorers were stupid. Not because of themselves. They just didn't have experience yet. He looked to her cocking an eyebrow. He vanished, she admitted, on his second trip there, but we still used some of his exploration routes as shipping channels to reach the Pantheon Islands. He was important. Dusk didn't reply because why would he contradict her? She liked believing this, and she always found, seemed fond of the stories of old trappers. She fancied herself, herself an amateur one, even still, despite the fact that she had been one of the ones who ended the entire profession. As Dusk was looking at the medallion, the vision finally vanished. Sec chirped, as if apologetic, when Dusk looked at her, the book's eye- bird's eyes were drooping, as if she were exhausted. "'I'm going to investigate stepping down,' Fathy said. "'A fake coup is silly, but if I simply quit, it could cause political unrest that justifies giving us an excuse to delay negotiations. Plus, it will remove me from a position where I can do damage.' Dusk nodded, then felt himself growing uncomfortable. For once, he found that he couldn't remain silent. He looked at her. "'Another will do worse, Fathy. Another will cause more death. You are better than another.' Are you sure no how could he how could he be he could not see the future like set could still he crouched down beside vathy's seat then held his hand toward her she clasped it then held tight he nodded to her you're stronger than anyone i know he said but you're just one person i learned five years ago that sometimes one person cannot stand before the tide then there's no hope of course there is we must become more than one we must find allies allies vathy Two peoples have come to bully us, to demand that we give up our resources. There must be others, perhaps those who are weak like we are, with whom together we might be strong. Trapper cannot fight a shadow alone, but a battleship with a full crew, that is something else. How would we find anyone else, Dusk? The ones above have forbidden us from leaving the planet. We're decades, well, maybe centuries away from building flying machines. I will go into the darkness, he said. She looked into his eyes. And though she'd objected each other time he suggested this, today she said nothing. At times, she had become like him, and he like her. She made him believe that he, they could adapt to the future. He just needed to make her believe that he could help. We sent entire crews into the darkness, Dusk, she said. Said Scientists, soldiers. No trappers. Well, no. I will go, he said. I will find help. And if you fail? Then I will die, he said. Like your explorer man. tenth the finder, you called him. Thus touched his forehead, then pressed his fingers, finger against hers. I give up Patchy for the planet, Vathy, but I will not give up the planet to those men from the stars, no matter how brilliant their weapons or how amazing their wonders. I will gather you an expedition, some guards, a crew. She met his eyes. You're going to insist on going alone, aren't you? He nodded. Fool man? Uh, fool man. He did not respond, because she might be right. But he was going to go anyway. And there we go. So when will I finish that? Who knows? Uh, But it is one of the projects on my radar, is establishing the things that I want to have done. So uh, we can look forward to that in the future. For now, I'm going to go home, and instead of going out on tour for three weeks, I'm going to keep writing. Thank you guys for reading. I hope you enjoy Rhythm of War. I hope you've enjoyed being with us tonight. And I hope to provide many, many more books for you in the future.